Father, we thank you for, uh, for who you are and for what you're doing. And uh, we want to bless our leadership that is down in, in Dunedin. We want to bless this big gathering that we've had with all of our Baptist family. And we pray that um, as we have met together there and as we meet together here, the same thing would come about, which is your glory is made known, uh, that your kingdom is extended, and that we come to know you more fully, and that our nation becomes a nation that knows and loves you. So we, we pray this in your son's mighty and holy name. Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, so I get the great joy of kind of continuing on our series uh, in David. And so when we come to David in this story, we find David standing on top of city gates, not in Jerusalem, but in a city on the outskirts of Israel. See, David and his crew have had to leave the city and are in essence in a sort of exile. And so David is sitting at the city wall looking and he's waiting and he's looking into the distance because a messenger is gonna be coming. And this messenger is coming to tell him news of a battle because the nation of Israel has descended into civil war. David's uh, place on the throne is being contested and there's a huge battle right now for the kingdom of Israel and David is waiting on the gates of the city to hear what happens. And he's waiting not only because he wants to know whether he will remain king of Israel or whether he's going to have to flee as a refugee in his own nation, because he's, he's waiting because the civil war, the insurrection, the conspiracy is being led by his now oldest son, Absalom. And so David is nervously looking out, waiting for news to hear of what happens. And it's a catch-22. If he wins the throne, will Absalom have to die? And if Absalom wins, will all of David's men die in battle? And you can almost imagine David standing at these city gates, looking out and thinking, how did it come to this? How did David go from being king firmly established to civil war against his own son with whom there'd be no possibility of reconciliation? How did it come to this? And we all ask the same question so often. When life gets really difficult, when we've had a breakdown of relationship, we ask, how did it come to this? As if we had no way of knowing or no way of doing anything about it. And that's the question David asks. So backtracking a little bit, let's learn how we got to this place. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at this one specific theme in David's life, and that is sin. Spent the last two weeks looking at David's sin as he took Bathsheba for his own, slept with her, and then used his own political power to kill her husband and get him out of the picture in order to keep Bathsheba for himself and maintain his own sense of political power. And at the end of this verse, Craig talked about it last week, Nathan came and confronted David and told David what he had done. And David repented and said, Lord, I have sinned and against you alone have I sinned. And so God said, David, you'll be spared, but there were some consequences that Nathan laid out for David. Nathan said to David, now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And so the way the story goes is it's like there's this big pond, you know? And when David sins, it's like this rock is dropped into a pond and it creates this ripple effect that is now moving on and on. Because as Craig said last week, there's repentance and there's forgiveness of our sins, but often our sins still have very real and lasting consequences. And so like the ripples in the pond, the story we're going to tell is like the consequences of these sin going further and further out. So after Nathan tells David this, it moves on and the story moves on to David's son, Absalom. Now Absalom is described as being incredibly tall and being incredibly handsome, being very kingly. His hair was super heavy, which is an odd thing to include in the Bible, but he had very heavy hair. There's a lot of very hairy men, but he exemplified kingship. And the whole nation would have looked to Absalom and been like, man, he looks like a leader. But those of us who've been following this story throughout Samuel, we should know and be wary of outward appearances and leadership, shouldn't we? It's the same thing that was said about Saul. It's the same thing that was said about Absalom. So Absalom was this kingly character. But then through the consequences of sin, something terrible happened to Absalom and to Absalom's family. See, Absalom had an older brother named Amnon. And Amnon fell in love with Absalom's sister. So it would have been Amnon's half-sister. And Amnon became so focused on her, he couldn't think about anything else. He, he just it was filled with lust over her in the same way you could imagine David being filled with lust over Bathsheba. The ripples spread. And Amnon devised this plan where he needed to get Tamar, Absalom's sister, for himself. So he goes to David and says, David, I'm sick. Bring me Tamar to come and wait on me. And in a perfect thing of irony, just as Uriah carried his own death sentence to Joab, so David gives the order that brings about so much calamity later on. David says, yep, send, send Tamar. She'll go and wait on you. And through a series of really awful events, Tamar is brought into the room with Amnon. Amnon, who's filled with lust, takes her and rapes her. Tamar was a, a royal virgin, and so she, she was raped by Amnon. But Amnon, once he had raped her, was no longer filled with lust for her, but he was suddenly filled with hate and disgust because she represented all the evil things he had just done. And so he took one evil and added another evil to it and kicked her out of the room. And Tamar said, no, Amnon, don't do this. At least talk to David. Maybe we can, he can arrange something. Maybe we could be married and then I won't be a destitute woman for the rest of my life. But Amnon, filled with rage and hatred, sends her out. And so she has to leave. And so she leaves a broken woman. Now Absalom heard about this. And when he heard about this, he went to Tamar and he said, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. 
and Tamar lived with her in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Don't take this thing to heart. Don't let, don't let this bitterness, don't let this wound fester in you for too long. But here's the great irony in saying this to Tamar. The scripture follows on right after and says, just a little bit further on, when King David heard about this, he was furious. And Absalom never said another word to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So the ripples in the pond spread. And now Amnon creates a sin and the ripples spread on from that. And now Absalom, through no fault of his own, is thrust into pain, heartache, and brokenness as he grieves for his sister. But you notice this first thing that Absalom says is he would not talk to Amnon, would not communicate with him because he hated him in his heart. It's one of the things that Samuel does throughout this whole book is Samuel talks about the condition and nature of our heart. And Absalom hated Amnon. And you see the beginning of this theme that's going to play out through the story. This unforgiveness, this bitterness sat inside of Absalom. Absalom was wounded, and rather than working through it, talking to David, seeking reconciliation, trying to bring about punishment or some sort of justice for Amnon instead, rather than working through the wound, cleaning it out, and dealing with it in a healthy way, the wound festers, and hatred builds up. And David, though he is mad, does nothing. He was furious yet just let the whole event pass by, trying to cover it up in the same way he tried to cover up his work with Uriah and Bathsheba, trying to keep the image of the royal house together. And for two years, it goes on like this. For two years, Absalom stews and festers. For two years, the bitterness grows stronger and stronger and stronger until the bitterness is so great Absalom can't wait for David to do something. Absalom takes the the moment in his own hands, and he devises a plan. He goes out into the countryside for a big celebration, and he says to David, I'm going to go celebrate. Allow me to bring my brother Amnon with me. And David, again, sits back and does nothing and says, sure, take him with you. And so they go out into the fields to celebrate, And in this celebration, the wound festers and festers and festers, and Absalom's plan comes to fruition, and he strikes down Amnon, kills his brother, and all this, in the middle of this big celebration, it's chaos. All the other royal princes run and flee because Amnon was the eldest and the heir to the throne. Absalom was second. And so all the royal princes flee, as Absalom kills Amnon. And David hears about this and is broken. He mourns and weeps and grieves for the loss of his son. But does he go out, does he reach out to Absalom and say, Absalom, come back. Absalom, let me bring you back into the fold. Absalom, come come be a part of this again. No, David doesn't do anything. 
So Absalom runs and Absalom himself goes into exile for three years. He lives in foreigner's territory. And so for three years, the wounds fester. And Absalom now is getting more and more angry because all he did was do the justice David should have done in the first place. And now he's the one being punished for it. Absalom's the one in exile. And then after three years, finally Joab, the man who gets everything done in Samuel, Joab manages to convince David to bring Absalom back from exile. And I want you to notice in David's response, you notice the same similar wording that Absalom used earlier. David said Absalom could come back, but the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. And can you see again, the ripples spread. Someone is wounded because of sin. And rather than working through it, the wound happens and it festers. Bitterness grows, resentment grows, and things get worse and worse and worse. And no one has that conversation that needed to happen five years ago at this point. So Absalom returns home, but he's still living in exile in his own family. And eventually Absalom, who's now wounded by the shunning from his own father, how will Absalom ever become king? How will Absalom ever move forward if David won't even look at him? Absalom finally gets Joab and says, Joab, look, I said, come here so that I can send you to the king and ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. Absalom can't take it anymore and says, look, I'd rather die than live in this exile in this place again. Let me see David. And so they managed to work it out. And David finally allows Absalom to come forward and they meet. But if you look at the text, and this is in the end of 2 Samuel chapter 14, there's this meeting, but it's quite shallow and it's quite superficial. Absalom walks in, hardly any words are spoken. Absalom bows, David kisses him. It looks like a, like a royal stage show like a performance, so that the rest of the kingdom could know that they are reconciled. And we know that it was shallow because immediately after, Absalom is brought back into the fold, but the wound in his heart is still there. Even killing Amnon has not taken away the pain of seeing his sister's life ruined and seeing his father do nothing about it. And so Absalom gets bitter and the wound grows and it festers. And so what he does is he gets, he gets himself a chariot and he gets 50 soldiers to follow him around. Now, Jerusalem was not that big in the day. You know, it would have been a small village by our standards, even though for them it was a city. So when you got a guy who's in a chariot with 50 soldiers marching up and down the city, it makes a scene. And so he would build this, he built this royal air around himself. And he would go to the city gates. And if anyone came through with a, a gripe or an issue, because one of the king's role was to be a judge and execute justice, when people would come in, he would say to them, 
Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king here to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who had a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. And then they would come forward and they would bow low to Absalom because he's royalty. And Absalom, very smart, very crafty, very clever, would lift them up and embrace them like a brother. And what he would do is he kept lifting people out of their own situ social situations and putting them on the same level of himself as the king, and everybody loved it. Because David wasn't doing much justice giving, as we can see throughout the story. David, who used to be so active throughout this entire narrative, basically sits back and lets life pass him by. And so Absalom basically launches a conspiracy. He puts himself up in the king's place, and says, if I were king, wouldn't I do such a better job? And he kisses, and he holds people, and he hugs them, and he lifts them up out of their situation, and it worked. The nation loved him. Samuel records it as saying, their hearts were won over by him. And popular, he became so popular, and favoritism for him grew throughout the entire nation. And now here's the scary thing. For four years, he sat outside the gates, taking the king's role, saying, ah, oh, you have a valid claim. If only I were king, I would execute justice. For four years, the wound festers in Absalom. For four years, David sits by in the back and lets the wound and his anger against Absalom fester. And so for four years, no one communicates. And for four years, this situation develops until the whole nation is won over by Absalom. And they can't help but love him. And after four years, Absalom senses his moment. And he brings a whole bunch of people and he goes out to Hebron, the very place where David was anointed as king and he anoints himself as king over all of Israel. He manages to bring in David's chief counselor, his right-hand man, into his conspiracy, and by this stage, the conspiracy has grown so strong, so powerful, that the whole nation is won over to it, and everyone is convinced Absalom should be king. And David now finally after this whole time of being passive, finally realizes, oh man, we gotta go. David realizes his entire court is at jeopardy, so he takes his entire family, all of his rulers, all of his servants, and they all have to flee the city of Jerusalem because they know that the whole nation is won over to Absalom, and they have to flee for their lives. And so they run out in shame and in exile, and in David, the wound festers. And in Absalom, the wound and the bitterness festers. And so Absalom returns into Jerusalem, now king over Israel with the old king in shame running away. And here comes the coup d'etat, the, the great pinnacle of it all and the fulfillment of everything Nathan had said earlier. The sword will never depart from you. Absalom had killed Amnon. One from within you will come and try to take over the kingdom. Absalom has now gained strength. And the last word from Nathan is, 
I will take your wives and he will, he will sleep with your wives. And what you did at night in secret, I will do in public. And Absalom returns into the city. And Ahithophel, David's right-hand man, says, sleep with your father's concubines, who he left to take care of the palace. And then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father. And the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And he slept with his father's concubines in all the sight of Israel. The bitterness grew, the wounds grew, and at this moment, there was no going back. In the culture and the time of the day, by doing what Absalom did, it was, it was like cutting the tie, saying, from here on out, there can be no reconciliation between us. From here on out, there can be no coming back. We have crossed a line we cannot go back to now. And David knew it. And so it ended up in the situation built and built until there was war. Absalom gathers his armies, David gathers his armies, and now we're back to David sitting on the gates of the city, waiting for news, thinking to himself, how did it come to this? And off in the distance he sees a messenger run up. This messenger runs quickly and David thinks, oh, it's one person, it must be good news. Because David's now, his heart is broken and soft and he wants to be able to stay king, but he also wants Absalom to live. He doesn't want to lose two sons in the midst of this. The messenger comes up and says, David, your armies are victorious. And David says, but what of Absalom? And the messenger says, oh, I don't know. And a second messenger comes up. And David says, what happened? And the messenger says, David, your armies are victorious. And David says, yes, 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 but what of Absalom? And the messenger says, may all the enemies of Israel be as that man. Absalom was killed, hanging in a tree, stabbed in the heart three times by Joab with spears. And his body was thrown into an unmarked mass grave. And David mourns. David weeps. The words that Samuel records telling about this are heart-wrenching as we can almost enter into his grief as David cries out, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. You can almost hear David mourning. How did it come to this? If only I could have died instead of you, how did it come to this? Now, I'm sure that David probably thought this is just the way things work, and this is just what happens, but as we look back over the story, we can see some really clear moments in how the situation went from a brother raping a half-sister to a civil war in which 20,000 people died and David lost both of his sons. How did it come to this? Sin took root. Bitterness took root. Unforgiveness took root. There were so many times early on in that story where something could have happened. When Amnon raped Tamar, 
Rather than letting the wound fester, Absalom could have gone to David and said, David, you are king. Do your role and bring about justice for the scenario. David, as king, could have gone and had a conversation with his boys saying, guys, an evil has been done. One of them could have done the job that Nathan did and presented the other with the sin, but instead nothing happened. When Absalom went and killed Amnon, what did David do? The wound festered and bitterness grew. And not once did he reach out for reconciliation, not once did he push out for justice, but he shut down the wall and that was it. No further. As the civil war grew, was their works together? No, the wounds and the festering on each side grew so deep that neither had the conversation with the other and they both let this sin overwhelm everything else. It's a rough story. And in some sense, David's kingship never really, never really recovers from it. When you lose both of your sons and your nation is descended into civil war in which 20,000 people are killed, it's hard to come back from that. Now for you and me, we can look at these stories and we can be like, oh, well, isn't that rough? But there's a terrifying similarity when we hear this story. If we just remove the more fantastic elements like the, you know, the raping and killing and all that bad stuff, the story of Absalom and David still takes place today so often. Let me reword it. In a church, there's a pastor, and the pastor makes a key decision and moves something around. Someone in the church is, is wounded, and they feel hurt by it. And so, rather than, rather than going and talking about it or dealing with the situation, they just stay quiet and they let the wound fester. They let the bitterness fester. And as it festers, they can't seem to move on beyond it. So instead, they turn to a few other people and they say, oh, can you believe what the pastor has done? Can you believe how the pastor made that call? Can you believe how the leadership has done this? And man, if only something were different, then wouldn't it be better? And they managed to garner support. And the pastor never really goes and talks to that person. And then what happens is then that person grabs a big group of people. And then suddenly there's a letter that's submitted to the pastor calling for his resignation. And at this point, the pastor himself is now wounded and hurt and doesn't go back to the person, have the conversation, and so the church splits. What if we retold the story in a family? A father and a son are going on. The father does something that the son doesn't like. The son, or the, the son does something the father doesn't like. The son gets angry and lashes out when his dad tries to come back, and then the wound grows in the father feeling hurt. The son feels misunderstood and they refuse to talk to each other. The bitterness grows, the bitterness develops, neither one reaches out to another, until years on and years on, all communication has shut down and the relationship is broken because both parties let the sin take root. It's such a common story, and it's terrifying because it's happening all around us. I can almost guarantee that most of us in this room at some point would have been involved in a situation like this, dealing with hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness. Now, Jesus actually talked about this with his disciples. And I wanna share with you the, the verse, I think that is probably the least followed by Christians, certainly myself, I'd, I'd put myself in there. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. And if you listen, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along 
so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. See, Jesus himself knew of how dangerous this scenario is. When we let bitterness and unforgiveness take root within us, and rather than going to the person, we let this fester within ourselves, it hinders and stops what God can do in our lives. It becomes like a blockage as we can't listen to anything else but our own anger. We can't work through anything else but our own bitterness. And the greatest irony about bitterness and unforgiveness is that we hold on to it because we're wounded. But when we hold on to it for too long, we end up keep, we end up keep getting wounded, but we end up wounding ourselves. As we shortcut everyone else around us, we isolate ourselves, we break down relationships. And this bitterness, like the same sin, has a disease and has a way of eating away at us. And that's why Jesus was so strong. If something happens, go have the conversation. Go talk to someone about it. Now, honest moment, I'd put my hand up here and say I'm the first one to say I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at this, eh? Anyone else feel terrified doing this or is it just me? Anyone's heart beat and you're like, yep, I'll definitely do that one day. <laughs> oh, it wasn't a good time. I'll catch them next week. Oh, I didn't know how to word it, so I'll, I'll do it later. I do it all the time, eh? Because the truth is, it's hard and it's terrifying and it's really difficult. But friends, brothers and sisters, family, let's be a people of courage. Let's not let this take root within us. Let's not let this fester within us. Let's be the ones filled and empowered by the Spirit who are ready and willing to take that first step in working towards reconciliation with the other. Because that is Jesus' ministry through and through, reconciling people to one another, reconciling families to one another, reconciling churches to one another. And by his Spirit, we can be agents of that reconciliation that save relationships, save families, and save churches by the power of his spirit. Let us be the courageous ones who will not let bitterness fester within us, who won't allow ourselves to just become the wounded ones, but will keep going to God and keep going to one another. And if we do that, there will be so much life and intimacy, because as we move through the small things, the big things we're able to move forward with. And if we catch things when they're small before they're able to take root, we're able to keep things on track rather than being derailed by the different things. Absalom's story is terrifying because we all have to walk through it at some point. But by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, we can move forward. And we can see reconciliation, even in the most broken of places. I'm gonna invite the team out and I'm going to pray and they're gonna, they're gonna play a song. Um, but can I invite you, I know we all come from different places, but like the ripples in the pond, others people's, other people's sin will affect us. And often we will not react in the way that we should. And very likely we can either sin back or we can become wounded and let the bitterness and the unforgiveness fester within us. As we sing this song, Allow God to speak to you. And if you're in a place where that's maybe happened to you, I understand maybe what, what hurt you and what wounded you wasn't necessarily your fault. Maybe you had no control over it. But God is saying, bring that to me. 
And maybe God is saying to you, there's someone that you could be reconciled with. Maybe there's someone with whom you've had a breakdown of relationship a while ago. Maybe there's a a wound you're carrying, a, a slight that has happened to you that you've been holding onto for a while. Let's take this opportunity as we pray and as we sing to offer that up to God and allow him to prompt us so that rather than becoming people who are bitter and broken, we become a people of reconciliation, bringing life wherever we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this story is confronting and it's challenging and it's incredibly difficult. And we can see as the effects of sin ripple through David's family, we can see how it just tore people apart. And we can see how Absalom and David each allowed bitterness and pain to fester in their heart until a point where their relationship broke down. And Lord, we confess that it's so easy for us to be in the same place. God, it's so easy to take on the pain. It's so easy to take on the hurt because it's hard. And it's so difficult to be the one to go and have that first step and to go and have that first conversation. Holy Spirit, would you work within us? Enable us to do what in our own strength we cannot do. Give us the strength to have the crucial conversations that we need to early on so that the the wounds or the anger that we feel doesn't fester into something worse. Allow us to keep removing the sin so that it does not take root within our lives. And Jesus, would you keep on guiding us with that image of reconciliation, that image of families being brought together, churches being brought together, all of humanity being brought together around you. And would you enable us to be a people of reconciliation wherever we go. Amen.